Hi, welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and uh, happy Thanksgiving week to everyone. There's absolutely, you know, it's going to be tough to find stuff to talk about, you know, because everybody's kicked back, relaxed, enjoying the holiday weekend. But with me to try and sort out the assorted mayhem and chaos, once again, is former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin and uh, CQ Roll Call roving, uh, <laughs> roving editor <laughs> and bon vivant <laughs> correspondent and columnist John Bennett. Guys, thanks for joining us <laughs> this week. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, the special counsel being uh, assigned to the Donald Trump case and, of course, Elon Musk. So stick around. We have a lot to talk about. We'll be right back. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I'm your host, Brian Karam. And uh, once again, joining us, Michael Zeldin and John Bennett. And we're going to talk a little bit this week. Uh, we're going to start out with a special prosecutor. That's the uh, the big news and the most misunderstood news, I think, of the week. Uh, and, and we'll start with you, Michael. One of the biggest problems, well, one of the biggest uh, pushbacks I've heard is that this is just justice delayed, justice denied, that Merrick Garland isn't serious about prosecuting Donald Trump and that appointing a special prosecutor is a way to keep, uh, keep it from just pushing the ball down the road without ever really doing anything. And I'd like to get your take on that. Well, you need to get a different circle of friends because that, that, hey, these are prosecutors, pal. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I stand by my point. Um, I, I don't think it can be read to mean that he's just pushing this down the, the, the hall or that he's not serious or anything of, of that sort. I, I think that there are a couple of things that need to be discussed around the special counsel. First is... Was it necessary under the law? No, it wasn't necessary. Was it prudent under the law? Most likely, because under the regulations, it says if you have extraordinary circumstances and that in the public interest, it makes sense to create a layer of separation between the, the attorney general and the prosecution then you appoint somebody. And so he was appointed under this extraordinary circumstances uh, language in, in the regulations. Fair enough. And what is going to happen essentially is this new special prosecutor is just going to stand in the place on a day-to-day -day basis of Merrick Garland, the same team of prosecutors has, that has been working on this case all along will continue to work. So it's just one step removing the prosecutor's from Garland, because that's all he's allowed under the, the regulations. These regulations, you have to remember, these regulations were passed, were were drafted after in the Ken aftermath Starr. of the after Ken Starr. And what was it that Ken Starr did that so upset uh, legislators or specifically Democrats? Was he filed directly a request for impeachment with Congress? He directly released to the public his so-called salacious report, and he brought criminal charges that DOJ thought they might not bring. And so the regulations made sure that the new special counsel 
would never have the authority to act without the attorney general's permission, essentially undermining the whole purpose of an independent counsel uh, law, because he's no longer independent. Right. He's beholden to the attorney general. And we saw that failure in the Mueller case. If Mueller didn't have to go through Barr, who knows what he might have otherwise done. Right. So well, let, let me that, bring that. That's the problem. Well, let, let me bring that in. John, I know you want to uh, jump in, but I the I think when people look at it and, and correct me if I'm wrong, they're looking at a special prosecutor and thinking it's a delay. I'm looking at a special prosecutor and thinking it it, it underscores the seriousness of what they're doing and the fact that uh, it would probably lead to something rather than not. But that's that's my pushback on those who think otherwise. John, you had something you want to jump in and say. Yeah, I just not that um, A.G. Garland is, is thinking about politics, but, you know, Donald Trump did declare that he's I mean, he's the first presidential candidate for 2024. So I think it takes away that that Trump argument, the inevitable Trump argument, he's going to make this. He's already making this case anyway, but it does. I think it dulls that a little bit that this is inherently political. Um, you know, Garland picked by Biden, who he's right now. We think that's who Donald Trump would run against in a general election. So I think it 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 was prudent that? politically. Who that? <laughs> well, we'll see. Well, I, I think it was also prudent politically. It takes away that you know that veneer. Uh, it takes a a bit of the argument away from Trump. But he's going to make it anyway, so why not go ahead and do this and put you know one more layer between Biden, one more layer uh, between Garland and and the investigation itself? So I thought it was I thought it was necessary. I don't I don't think it will change uh, what they're doing, where they're headed, uh, and and what they're looking into. So uh, I think it was uh, it was it was a wise move given that he did declare a presidential bid. And, and Michael, can I just add on top yeah. of that? To John's point, which I agree with, and on top of it, what you have and what I think really was the tipping point for Garland was you have Trump as a declared presidential candidate. In and of itself, that's not enough. But Biden has said that he intends to run. So you, you're in this very awkward appearance of Merrick Garland working for the guy who is running against you, um, prosecutor, right. prosecuting yeah. the guy who's running against you. That's mm -hmm. what makes it. That's what make it makes it so um, extraordinary. And that's well, it's, it's extraordinary because it's Donald Trump. Anything he's involved in, see, that's yeah. also that. I've never seen yeah. this shit before. That's, <laughs> that's always the case with the dear Don. But Michael, to the point of delay, how much does this actually? Do you think does it actually delay? Because I I have a hard time with all the work that's been done. The fact that he doesn't have to staff up. The fact that he's already there. I don't know if if this is a huge delay tactic to push the ball down the road. And that's that's where most people believe that, you know, it's just a delay. But I don't see right. that. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, I've never heard you to be wrong ever. So <laughs> far be it for me to start something new now. But <laughs> the, the, the truth is. is My wife would argue with you on that one. <laughs> and she'd be she right. <laughs> she she knows more intimate details than I do, and more than I want to know. But there you go. <laughs> so, pause. Serious face. Yes. Okay. The the, I think what people who are saying that misunderstand is, this is not Mueller. Meaning, Mueller was appointed on day one of the investigation. So he had to get an office, staff the office, get the detailed agents from the FBI seconded to him. He had to do all that. That takes that takes months. When I was an independent counsel, it took us three months about to get up and running. Here, the investigation is sort of two years-ish in the making. And all this is is essentially one new guy being added to an existing team that's up and running. And so I don't see there being really much of a delay. And in fact, it may speed things up a bit on a day-to-day -day basis because now you've got a guy whose only job is to look at these prosecutions. Whereas before, 
the guy who had a look at it day to day in a sense was Merrick Garland, who's got a lot of stuff on, on his plate. plate. Yeah. So I think I, I don't think um, it'll slow it down. I think, though, there's an interesting question to be asked, which is, does this prosecutor who's been named, who seems like a you know, terrific federal prosecutor, um, as you measure federal career, federal prosecutors go, but it is this is a question I have about independent counsels generally. They seem to pick people who are career prosecutors, the Robert Mueller uh, types. And it always seems to me that it would be better in these types of hotly contested political cases if the special counsel had experience in the private sector and perhaps even in addition to just general private sector as a defense attorney so right. that they can make see career prosecutors prosecute and they see the world through that lens people who have done both prosecute and defend see the world through those two lenses and it sometimes yeah causes you to pause as a prosecutor when you think, is this something I really should do? Yes, I can. I know I can. I know I have the power to do it. But is it is it something I should do? Is this the right thing to do? Career prosecutors, I don't think, ask that question as often as prosecutors who have also been on the other side of the, the fence. And so I always wonder whether it's a good thing that you have, quote unquote, the career prosecutor in charge of these types of special prosecutions. Remember, the under the independent counsel statute, one of the reasons that they let it sunset was they said that these prosecutors, the, the Donald Smaltz and, and, and others who had these the, uh, the HUD investigation, these things lasted for years and years and years because they said these guys are like sort of running amok because they've got no, no governors on them. I, I think if you've got a life to return to in the private sector, it, it again informs your timeline. So I'm not disparaging this pick from a credential standpoint. He's a very qualified prosecutor. There's no question about it. But I just raised this academic question of should special counsels not be required to have some breadth of experience beyond just being a prosecutor? Yeah, that. Uh... Shouldn't a White House reporter have more experience than just sitting in a briefing room? That's that's the same question to me. More well-rounded is better all the way around in in in, in those types of positions. John, you think that uh, think uh, the Donald's going to try to make hay out of uh, of the special prosecutor? You think he's scared in his boots, or both, or none of the above? Of course, excuse me. Of course, he's going to try to make hay. That's what he does. He's a haymaker, <laughs> and he throws haymakers. He only throws haymakers. Yeah. So yeah, he's gonna he's gonna make the hay, and then he's gonna set it on fire. <laughs> that's just who he is. That's how he approaches all of this. Um, you know, he he burns it down. I and mean, how many times have we said that? You know, metaphorically, Trump burned it down or Trump broke this. So of course, he's gonna try to make political hay out of this. Um, he's got to keep that base fired up. He's got to keep pounding, um, not the Carolina Panthers uh, slogan, keep pounding, but he's got to keep pounding that drum that they're coming after me because they're coming after you, that this is really about our movement. And, I, you know, he'll, he will try to benefit from this, but I do think it's a tough sell. Uh, the special counsel, as Michael was getting at, you know, this is what he does. He's an investigator. He's a prosecutor. He's not a political guy. So it does take that away. And I what what everyone's really going to be going after, and we saw it in the midterms um, a few weeks ago, the midterm elections a few weeks ago, it's really those independent crossover voters. Now, we were told for what, four years, at least two years, that you know there are no more independents. Well, right. surprise, surprise, everybody. This election was largely decided on those independents who rejected Trump's election denialism and and the handpicked candidates uh, in a lot of places that that Trump picked because they were election deniers. So, you know, it this will matter to those folks, and Trump's going to have a hard time um, convincing those independents. The return of the independents, by the way, as an independent, um, I'm glad that that my tribe 
is back and 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 you know we 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 go by candidates and issues oh my goodness what an approach so trump's gonna have a hard time with those folks and he's gonna need he's also losing evangelicals right so he's gonna need those independents even more especially in those six or eight states that you know actually matter in the electoral college and you know he's got a harder sell today than he did a few days ago about this uh, investigation, I think. Yeah, I want to I want to read you guys something that uh, Donald Trump sent out to his loyal followers and get your reaction to it. He said, Brian, the Biden. I love how all these emails come with my name on them. And, and, <laughs> very personal. <laughs> yeah, very personal. Brian, the Biden administration has weaponized the Department of Justice. This horrendous abuse of power is the latest in a long series of witch hunts. Now that, and this is in red, now that I have announced I am running for president, all caps, of the United States, uh-huh. a corrupt and highly political justice department just appointed a radical left special counsel made up of Trump haters. <clears throat> we cannot let them get away with this, Brian. We cannot let this happen to our country. Here's the sentence. I am one of the most honest and innocent people ever in our country. They have found nothing. <laughs> that hyperbole aside, Michael, I think that the the fact one of the big fact errors here is um, the highly political Justice Department has just appointed a radical left special counsel made up of Trump haters. So far as I know, there's only one person that's been assigned, as we already discussed, the staff is already in place, and he's not a, a radical left special counsel, is he? There are very few radical left career prosecutors. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so the, the point, the points that are obvious and, and just worth reiterating is this case is principally being investigated by career prosecutors and those uh, agents who are also career agents. And I'll expect that Many of them were there in the Trump Justice Department as well, because that's what career prosecutors do. They stay from administration to administration because they act in an apolitical way. Uh, To call this fellow Smith, the special counsel, uh, radical left is undermined by the types of prosecutions he has brought in in, in his career. He's he's a prosecutor who prosecutes whoever he finds to have violated criminal laws. That's what prosecutors are mandated to do by their code of conduct and ethics. So it's just a hyperbolic rhetoric to raise money from you know the innocent Brian Carams of the world uh, who don't know better. And I you know think that it's like much of the hyperbole that we've seen from the former president. Uh, not worth thinking about. Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna, uh, John, leave this one with you. I mean, you and I saw a lot of stuff during the White House, <clears throat> the four years of Donald Trump, <laughs> and That's this good. particular comment: "I am one of the most honest and innocent people ever in our country." <laughs> I, I read it. I couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> well. We don't need uh, Glenn Kessler from the Washington Post for this one. I'm going to give that one five Pinocchios. Uh, (laughs) Trump, his announcement last Tuesday night, you know, he wasn't he wasn't at the lectern more than than three or four minutes before he started uttering falsehoods and twisting facts and sometimes just outright ignoring facts. So, you know, that hour long or so spiel we got from Mar-a-Lago that's just the latest example. I mean, he uttered, I don't know what the, the Washington Post fact check staff, the final count was, but it was tens of thousands of lies and false statements just when he was president. Yeah. So he is not the most, uh, the, one of the most honest Americans. Um, you know, I don't, I'll put my columnist hat on. I'll take my reporter cap off and put my columnist hat on. That's just, that, that's one of the biggest lies he's ever told that he's not a liar. <laughs> Yeah, that's I. Well, his statement when he came out and declared was hilarious. Decades and decades without war because of me. He was he was in office for four years. <laughs> you know, my one of my favorite examples from last Tuesday night is 
the Donald says, uh, the Donald said something to the extent of, I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing, kind of quoting here, that I removed from the military Biden's radical left agenda from the military. He served before Biden. <laughs> yeah. He couldn't undo something. Biden beat him and replaced him and all of his, and then put in his policy. So that is, I mean, that's just, that's just a whopper. I mean, you know, he talks about Biden's cognitive state. What planet is he on? Yeah. Well, so listen, John, I, I think that as a former president, he can think oh, declassification and right. declassify. <laughs> I think as a former president, he can also think, correct the military and it's corrected. So yeah. you just, you just don't you understand. Go. His he, full powers. He can His retroactively mind meld. That's, mm -hmm. that's I got it. <laughs> you just missed. You forgot that. You forgot Vulcan, that little plot. <laughs> the Vulcan mind warp thing. You know. <laughs> How could I? Maybe maybe Trump thought that I forgot it, that's and therefore it. I forgot it. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> We've got so much to learn. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but and the Donald can can teach us. After <laughs> all, so he's the only teach. one that can fix it. <laughs> but all that he knows, it's it's just like campaign cash. He's not going to give it to us, just like he didn't give much campaign cash uh, to his handpicked candidates. And and I think that that hurt a lot of them. They didn't have the money uh, to run a truly competitive race. True, true that. Um, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, the other moron of the day, no, the other uh, issue of the day we'll be talking about is the, the future of Twitter, crypto, and, and Tesla. <laughs> so stick around. I'm just kidding, partly. Anyway, stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, you. Yeah, you. We're talking to you, and we need your help. Seriously. As you probably know, independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy, like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com slash JATQ podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with me again is Michael Zeldin, former federal prosecutor, and uh, John Bennett from CQ Roll Call. And um, I guess right now would be a perfect time to ask each one of you to to plug what it is you, you, you want to plug. So, uh, John, we'll start with you. We can catch your uh, your column. and your. Uh, by the way, the newsletter was great last week, but uh, tell us where we can catch all your action. Oh, catching all the action. Uh, we're going to have a check rollcall.com uh, later this week. Um, we, I paused my column last week. I was, I was on the road for some, uh, some family time, uh, but we're coming back this week and we're going to, um, I visited the uh, Kings Mountain uh, National Military uh, Park and Battlefield uh, right outside of my hometown in North South Carolina, right there on the state line. And, was thinking about the battle itself and how, as you read the placards around the trail, then as you go around where the, the battle actually took place, uh, one thing they pointed out was um, that these, you know, these were loyalists loyal to the crown, uh, to the, to the King of England, and then the colonists or the rebels, the colonists or the rebels, but you had brothers on either side, brothers fighting brothers. And the more I, I read about the battle and and experienced uh, the the trail there, it it really it, so little has changed. We're still we're not shooting at each other now. We're tweeting at each other, and uh, I'm going to well, get into progress. that. <laughs> there is some progress. There is some progress, and um, you know, talk a bit about that and and how it's changed, but it's still it's still similar, um, and how we still fight each other, just not with with muskets anymore. Um, but, uh, spoiler alert, um, there are signs to be thankful for cause it's Thanksgiving. So we can be a little cheesy and have a Thanksgiving, uh, Thanksgiving theme to the column, but I thought the midterm elections did. And you know, my columns, I, I try to, sh to, to shoot from, you know, shoot straight and, and not sugarcoat things, but 
Um, so sometimes they can be a bit critical, but I do think the midterms should should give us um, we should be thankful uh, for the midterms. I, I think there is some fever breaking, and when I say the fever, of course, I mean Trump and 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 the MAGA movement. Um, I I I think. I think something is turning here finally, and we'll get into that in the column, and that'll be up later this week on Roll Call. Cool. And and Michael, where can we catch it? Ah, the podcast. So I host a podcast <clears throat> called That Said with Michael Zeldin, and it's on iTunes and Spotify and all other podcast apps. What I talk about on the podcast is books, I don't talk day-to-day politics or law. I pick books that raise interesting topics, such as Brian Karam's book, Free the Press, about freedom of the press. And I have, uh, I release about every week, sometimes every 10 days, depending on the length of the book. And the book that is upcoming, I will do the taping of the interview on Wednesday of of this week, the day before Thanksgiving, and probably release it on Monday after Thanksgiving, called American Midnight um, by Adam Hochschild. And it's about the period of 1917 to 1921. And in this period of time, we saw really the beginnings of what we're living through now, although in greater um, seriousness then where labor union activists and socialists and anti-war protesters were all being jailed for lengthy periods of time under the Woodrow Wilson administration for things that they said and and things which they tried to mail through the U.S. post office, which was then made a crime. So there's a lot of analogy that's uh, two hour times now, much worse then than now, actually. Um, but that'll be released right before, right after Thanksgiving. And it's stuff like that uh, that we'll be talking about each week uh, going forward. Cool. I, I, I'm going to pick that book up and I can't wait to listen to the podcast. So we're going to jump back in this podcast with uh, the other uh, moronic developments of this week uh, is <laughs> Elon Musk, Twitter <clears throat> brought back <laughs> Donald Trump. And there's all kinds of speculation that uh, the Twitter is headed for a demise. Tesla stock is down $15 a, a share. Uh, Elon Musk has exposed his derriere. He's failing. He's going to blow up and all kinds of crap like that. So uh, let's start with, um, let's start, John. Do you think, uh, how big is, you know, in the rural populace, and hell, I got to say in uh, most of the country, that I know of, and you can uh, speak to it as well. Uh, Twitter ain't that big a deal. No, I was in uh, rural, rural North Carolina, uh, just outside of Charlotte. And anybody who's spending time there knows uh, you get 10 minutes outside of Charlotte and it's very uh, rural, or as we would say there, it's very country. And I didn't hear anyone in Gastonia or surrounding areas worried about Elon Musk worried about Twitter, you know, they're worried about spending Thanksgiving with their families. They're worried about inflation. They're worried, you know, about their next mortgage payment and the kids are in school. Uh, this is not something that most of the country is is paying much attention to at all. Uh, it will affect, It should Twitter collapse or he make major changes, it will change uh, the country's politics. Further major changes. Right. It will change the country's politics because so much of political communication and posturing and messaging does happen on Twitter. And, you know, every good congressional office, White House press office, um, you know, candidate for this or that has has a strong social media presence and a, and a strong social media strategy. It's it's part of everything they do messaging wise. So it will change uh, politics if, if Twitter collapses. Um you know, some people say it it'll change uh, politics for the better. I, I'm not so sure. I, you know, the one as a White House reporter in the Trump years, yes, it it nearly drove me over the edge as a human being. But I used to tell people we should be thankful for most 
of the, the, the then president's tweets because it was a direct line into his head, into what he was thinking about this government shutdown or 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 that legislation that that Republicans were trying to push through that maybe, you know, he would inform us in real time that he didn't like these three provisions and, and he didn't want to sign it and they needed to to go back to work. So, you know, I, I'm not so sure that 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 it that it will change politics for the better if, if Twitter goes under. I, I I think there are a lot of advantages. Certainly for reporters there are a lot of advantages, but you know, it is a way for people to learn more about, you know, uh, the folks that we elect to all kinds of offices, how they feel about issues and, and and where they're headed and and if they can support this or that or or just where they stand on on the issue. Yeah, so they, there is some transparency there that I think we would lose. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And and but I'm not so sure that. OK, I'll, I'll, I'll jump into it. I know Michael has an opinion on it. We discussed it beforehand and I find myself, uh, you know, partially in agreement here. I don't think that Trump coming back to if he comes back, he's already said he he likes truth social better because that's his. But if he does come back to Twitter, uh, other than, you know, having my uh, phone ring and my alarm go off several thousand times a day. I don't know that Donald Trump coming back to Twitter, that's my personal uh, price for it. I don't know that him coming back to Twitter is going to be that bad of a, of a deal. And I think it's a, quite a bit of an overreaction to go, well, it's just automatically bad. Michael? I, I actually think it's good that people are being unbanned from social media platforms. I am of the mind that the removal of people because we don't like their ideas from social media platforms that are maybe not in country, but um, in urban settings, you know, pretty widely read. I, I think the removal of people from those platforms was bad. I don't really subscribe to Twitter very frequently. I have, last time I checked, about a month ago, I had, I think, 1,500 followers, so nothing that I use to communicate with people. But I think that it's important that we have a free marketplace of ideas. There were there yeah. were cases. Yeah. Yeah. There were cases um, in this 1917-1921 period that uh, I, I mentioned in respect to the podcast that I'm up doing. And in one of these cases, Abrams versus the United States, what happened there was some uh, labor activists and socialists threw leaflets out the window of a building in New York City, which denounced the war, the war, the First World War, and, and you know we stopped building these weapons of destruction. And they were charged under the Espionage Act, and they were convicted and sent to jail for years for leafleting against the war. In that case, which was a 7-2 majority opinion convicting them, Oliver Wendell Holmes dissented, which is unusual because two or three years earlier, in a, in a very similar case of people protesting against the draft in World War I, Holmes upheld their conviction saying that their speech presented a clear and present danger that's where to we the come United up with that States. term right well it was a it was you know it was done in the context of upholding the conviction of people who were simply speaking out against the draft in world war 1 saying that that speech created a clear and present danger to our national security 3 years later in abrams he's thought about this a little bit longer and changes his mind and here's what i wanted to say uh, to you about this deactivating de people from Twitter and other efforts to curtail free speech on these platforms. What Holmes says in his dissent is, quote, we should be eternally vigilant against attempts to check expression of opinions we loathe. The ultimate good desired is better reached by the free trade of ideas in the competition of the marketplace. And I believe that. And yeah. so efforts to curtail speech like delisting or whatever the hell it is that, that, that Twitter called the removal of Trump or 
other efforts to limit uh, free speech on these platforms is very dangerous from a First Amendment standpoint. And so people in the well, country, the in rural areas, should be should be worried about this. It's not it's not the price of gas or eggs, but it is the the you know bedrock of our uh, uh, democracy, free well, speech. Well, I, I would say that, um, and you know this, Brian, because you wrote about it in your damn book. Yes, and I yeah I did, and I will say this: I disagree with what you say, but will defend to death your right to say it. Has been the founding principle of the spirit of the First Amendment. I don't think that it's actually a First Amendment case unless the government is involved, but the the spirit and the essence of the First Amendment and what that means for the free flow of ideas means that we have to tolerate uh, loathsome opinions because I, I would personally rather have them out in the open and see them or hear them. I'd rather hear someone say what they really think and I know for certain who they really are than, yeah. than have things buried and you and you have to guess. So the racist who wants to come out and spout is not racist nonsense. Okay, I know who you are. That's that's who that's who you are. Okay, fine. But if you ban that speech and they have to hide it, it doesn't mean that you're getting rid of the feelings or the or the opinion. It means they're hiding it, and that's more dangerous, I think, to a democracy than having those those opinions be heard. Sure, because you can't you can't in the marketplace of ideas you can't compete against ideas that are not articulated. Yes, exactly. And John, you you were going to jump in something here. I saw you nodding your head. <laughs> I think I was nodding my head at a Slack message from, uh, from the day job, but that's okay. Um, yeah, I I I I, I think that um, that we do need the free marketplace of ideas, and it is hard uh, from a journalist standpoint. Uh, it's I would prefer to get a tweet from Senator X explaining you know, his or her position than having to, you know, rely on, on, on a source from a think tank to, you know, smartly flesh out what he or she thinks the Senator's position is. So, like I right. said, um, I think it's, it's a good thing. I, I think Twitter has been a way, I think it's enhanced political communication that way. Um, now we've seen the, the ills of Twitter, uh, you know, sometimes with, with Trump's rhetoric and, and calls to violence and almost condoning things, not just Trump, but also his, uh, his supporters. Um, you know, we saw tweets, we saw tweets leading up to the Capitol riot, uh, from some of his supporters and some of his aides, uh, that, that was presented, you know, on the big screen, the January 6th committee, they put a lot of tweets up. Yeah, there. so there's evidence. It is a double-edged sword. Uh, but sometimes you, you do have to take the bad uh, with the good. Well, the only downside for me is I hate those damn alarms coming off on my phone whenever Trump, <laughs> whatever passes for a thought in that empty head, it right. passes through the head and then onto the tweet. But to your point about uh, politics, <clears throat> I would far, I would much rather hear from the office holder than from his uh, press secretary. So if it's a tweet, that's a direct quote and you can use it and it's much better. As far as the uh, the hatred goes, and, and I would much, again, I just don't think that it serves anyone any good to keep the speech from being said. But, you know, the, the old saying is, uh, you're free to hate me. You're not free to act on the hate. So it's actions that are the problem. If the words spur you to an action, maybe, but at the same point in time, I want to hear what it is that you think even if I don't agree with it. Well, and that's right. And what you just articulated, too, is an important thing, which is in the law, there's a case, Brandenburg versus Ohio. In that case, yep. um, Brandenburg, a Klan member, um, gave an incendiary speech in Ohio, and he was arrested and convicted under the hate speech sort of law that Ohio had back in the day. And the ACLU took the case to the Supreme Court on appeal and Brandenburg's conviction was overturned. And what the Supreme Court said in Brandenburg, which is still the law today, that is that abstract notions of uh, hate, I hate Jews, I hate Blacks, I hate Catholics, I hate chocolate, whatever it is, 
is permissible under the First Amendment. If it is, I hate Brian Karam, let's go get him. Yes. That sort of theory and practice. And so to the extent that this is just hyperbolic rhetoric, that which we've seen in our country throughout history, um, that's protected. If it's, let's go get him, let's go get Mike Pence, let's hang Mike Pence, and they're chasing Mike Pence down the hallway, that's criminal. And so yeah. you just make those distinctions and the law um, uh, appropriately addresses them. And so I think we have to always be careful about trying to suppress thoughts that we of our opponents that we don't like um, because what goes around comes around. Right. And especially people on the left have to remember that these types of laws have been used to suppress their thought historically way more than any other group. Yes. And so when you you have to be careful of goose and gander stuff, you know, You're you, right. can't, you can't start advocating stuff that, you know, because he's my enemy, it's okay to suppress his free speech rights because yeah. it'll it'll come it'll come back to haunt you. Yeah, that's the the Richard Jenning uh comedian made a joke one time and he said if you've gone too far right or too far left, you've gone too far. And and to your point uh, about the hate speech that, you know, a lot of people are familiar with, you can't walk into a crowded theater and scream fire. Well, you can if there is one, but, you know, if you scream fire, the limit of free speech there is you can't go in and incite. And that's to your point. You can't incite action uh, based on uh on hate or untruthful speech. There you go. That's or or that's that's the the guiding point. You have to look at each case individually before you move forward. I would s simply say that while I disagree with what you say, I will defend to death your right to say it should not be replaced today with I disagree with what you say and therefore you should be banned from saying it. Because you're right, what goes around comes around, which brings us around to the to our wonderful <clears throat> Tesla owner and, and 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 Twitter. So is do you think that um, I, I guess at, at the end of the day, do you think that it that Twitter is is destined to fail or will somehow survive? John, you want to first crack at that? Yeah, boy, this one is is tough. I can't really get a read on on where this is headed and. And exactly where the uh, the ejection handle is for Mr. Musk on Twitter, um, or or when he would reach for it, and what would it look like if he did punch out? Uh, is there another deal to be done here? Could 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 he sell it? Um, he certainly wouldn't make any money off of it. He right, so he wouldn't make any money. So what's the the incentive? Uh, I, I, I'm trying to find where his incentives are. I'm still trying to figure out why he bought the damn thing in the first place. So I think I'm, I'm, I'm like, a few that's months. a good question. I, yeah. I think it was like Bezos. I think he wanted to be part of the media. Uh, yeah. And and this was a media. Uh, and look, let's face it, it. It's social media, but it's media. And sure. Bezos has the post. He wanted his equivalent of that. I think he was upset. He saw that uh, he thought liberals were owning yeah. Twitter and wanted to be a part of that and thought he could run it like he ran his other two companies. Yeah. And, and I think he's I, made some calculated mistakes. Yeah, I, I don't think his decision to buy it was a business decision. I, I think it was an emotional decision. Yep. And so I'm having, you know, I can't get inside the guy's head. Maybe if, if he would tweet his reasoning, maybe I could understand a little better. But yeah, I, I don't know where this is going because I don't understand why we're even here in the first place. <laughs> Michael? <laughs> I, I think it is something that remains to be seen. Why he bought it is up to him. He overpaid, everyone says, but oh, you yeah. know, he can he can afford to overpay. And, <laughs> True. Um, that's True. his that's his prerogative. True. That's what right. he intends to do, what he intends to do with it. I don't think he knows yet. 
And um, it'll be interesting to see because as we've been talking about for the last 20 minutes or so, it's an important platform for speech uh, in America. When you look at who is tweeting and how frequently they're tweeting and what they're tweeting about, this has become uh, a primary vehicle for communicating where there used to be press releases and other things. Now you get tweets and that's therefore an important part of the, the, the democratic fabric of our country. And so what he does with this has consequence and we have to just wait and see. And what the government does in reaction is also as important. You were right to say, Brian, that the First Amendment doesn't apply in private relations between right. people. You can't sue me for violating your First Amendment rights. You can sue me for defamation and libel and, and right. stuff. But if the government decides that it's going to start regulating um, more actively what can and cannot be placed on uh, social media platforms, well, then, you know, how far is it before they start saying that John Bennett's column needs to be uh, regulated too? Or the New York Times coverage of a story has to be regulated. I just think there's a very right. slippery slope. I um, agree. When you start talking about uh, regulation of um, speech, even speech that's done in you know, a set number of characters and which is generally speaking incendiary across the board. I, I watch people who have hundreds of thousands of followers and most of them, if they're not just, you know, famous actors or uh, sports figures, they seem to have them because of the incendiary nature of their tweets. It's not that they say, here's an interesting article I think you should read. That'll get six, you know, six likes. But if they say so-and-so was an SOB um, and deserves X, Y, Z, then you get, you know, 15,000 um, responses. So that's what the platform has been used for in certain measure. And, you know, that's sort of unfortunate, but it's the way it works. And so yeah. we have to just let it be. And if the marketplace likes it, it'll survive. And if they don't like it, you know, it'll vanish. And, and on that note, we're going to vanish for a, a quick commercial message. And when we come back, final thoughts on this Thanksgiving week. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, JATQ Podcast. That's JATQ Podcast. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. And scatological comments aside during the break, we're, we're here for a few final thoughts on this Thanksgiving week. And uh, so I, I will. I'll ask, uh, uh, Michael, what are you thankful for as we head into Thanksgiving this year? I once took a taxi cab and I said to the driver, how are you doing? And he said, I'm above ground. And I am thankful for being above ground. You know, it's a it's a it's a great thing to be alive. And <laughs> I am grateful for that. And I'm grateful to have my family and friends uh, to make my life interesting. And of course, I'm very grateful to each of you that I get to spend one day a week with you. Uh, and I'm great. And, and I'll, I'll reciprocate that. Thanks, John. Yeah, I reciprocate that as well. Thankful that we get to do this and and have some fun and and talk about serious stuff and and do it in a in a fun way. Uh, this was I'm glad that we started this uh, this year. But I was thankful this weekend. I spent some time. Uh, I went uh, proud uh, alum of Appalachian State University and spent Saturday in Boone. Um, took my wife there for the first time and uh, and saw Big Mountaineer uh, victory. It uh, hasn't been a great year on the gridiron, but uh, they played well Saturday and 
felt like old times again and the crisp mountain air and got to see my family, uh, spend a couple of days with my family. Good to see my folks. Uh, very thankful uh, for them and uh, just thankful for a nice weekend. It was nice to be back in Boone and um, boy, the, you, you, I can't get anything above it on the list of places to retire that area. So uh, I was eyeing real estate as I was driving around. <laughs> and John, you know, you know that my my daughter lives in Burnsville, which is right. right in that area, and it is Mount Mitchell area is just right uh, heaven on earth. It really is. It was uh, it was great. My wife was taking in the views as we were driving up Saturday morning. It was uh, it was a good day. Well, I, I'm going to be I, I'm going to echo your sentiments, Michael, a little bit. It's uh, good to be above uh, this. The right side of the dirt, as my grandfather used to say. So thankful for that and thankful for uh, family and friends. And of course, my my grandson, who, you know, uh, he's the reason for the scatological comments. I'm, I'm going to blame it on him. And <laughs> and uh, but uh, and I'm also thankful that Aaron Rodgers got exposed for being the douche that he is. But that's just <laughs> me. <laughs> wow! Wow! Go pack! Yeah, <laughs> the pack is on its back, and I'm a I'm a longtime Packer fan. The only thing I was also uh, thankful for is that thankful for uh, of course uh, Herschel Walker and Brett Favre exposing the need for, to update <clears throat> the NFL's concussion protocols because every time they open their mouth, they let us know just how damn serious it is. And but other than that, listen, guys, it's been uh, you know it's always a lot of fun hanging out with you guys, and it's always fun talking issues. And so join us next week. We do have to talk about the January sixth committee committee as it uh, winds down. What to look forward to in the new Congress. And how Joe Biden, if and you know, he has said in his last press conference um, that he has an intent to run, but he wants to get a week with his uh, wife and family to discuss the issue before the end of the year in a vacation, which I believe he's going to be taking uh, today. He he leaves for uh, Camp David in North Carolina. I think he's going to. He's going to be traveling. He'll be out of the White House for a while, and perhaps we'll have a definitive answer out of him uh coming soon so all of those will it looks like the the year coming uh up will be definitely as interesting as the year that has just passed and finally i want to um uh thanks for good friends we lost one uh in our business recently uh gary martin uh longtime reporter and uh bureau chief the washington bureau chief in nevada uh died while covering the elections uh and election results when he was in nevada and uh, knowing Gary as I did, I think the thing that would piss him off the most is he didn't get to find out what uh, the results of the election. God knows he was trying to cover it. So uh, one of the really good guys in our business, uh, an old-fashioned, hard-nosed gumshoe reporter. We need more like him, and he was a hell of a human being. So uh, God bless everybody. Have a great, um, have a wonderful Thanksgiving, and we'll catch you guys after Thanksgiving. I am your host, Brian Karam. This is Just Ask the Question. We'll catch you next time.